0: Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Hi everyone, I'm Ayushi Mona, your host on India Book, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its book and listen to the voice of its authors. Today, I have with me, Vikram Chandra. Uh, Vikram is a powerful uh, literary voice uh, and very, very popular writer. He's written Red Earth and Pouring Rain, which is my introduction to him. He's also written Sacred Games and Love and Longing in Bombay. The book that we're going to discuss is Mirrored Mind. Uh, which is also I think printed in the U.S. as Geek Sublime. Uh, Mirrored Mind was Vikram's non-fiction debut and and if I can call it that, it's a very whimsical and eclectic book because it seeks to uh, you know talk of two very interesting things coding and literature, art and you know technology and it's, it's very peeping because not just Silicon Valley uh, get covered in the scope of the book or, or you know, topics such as uh, literary modernism, but very geeky things like logic. Welcome to the show, Vikram.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Mirrored Mind, more than other any other of your books, right? It's personal because, of course, it, it, it is part memoir and it borrows from your own experiences. Was this book special? Um you do write. Did you feel that you had to give birth to it, and it was you know the seed was inside you, as opposed to the other works that you've written so far?
1: Ah uh, no, I think the struggle to find each book for me has been equally painful and uh, rewarding in each of the books, but this was an odd one how it came to be. So I was working on some new fiction, and I'd reached a point at which um, I, I. Didn't know what was going to happen next in that fiction. And I, I touch wood, I've never been blocked. But whenever this happens to me, this feeling of, you know, I have these characters, I have this space, but I don't know what to do next. I just take a couple of weeks off and try not to think about writing um, and go on and, you know, listen to music and watch movies and read books. But this time, that two week period kept extending. And then finally, I thought, you know, I've had this idea in my Head for a long time about writing something about the world of programming and the tech world for the general reader, right? Because the tech culture is very much its own. It has its own mythologies, its own heroes and heroines and so forth. So I thought this was going to be like a 30-page essay, right? That I would get it done in a two or three weeks. I would send it off to some glossy magazine to get published, and that would be that. And then once I started writing it and I was thinking about programming. And then, you know, I talked to a couple of friends and they talked about Parnini and suddenly the book started to expand and became, I mean, what I thought was still an essay started to expand. And then my wife, who was reading Melanie, who was reading various versions of this, she read like something that was like 85 pages long. And she said, you know, this is not an essay anymore. It's a book. <laughs> so, so then I had to sort of give in to this. And then I spent a few years writing the damn thing.
0: Okay, so that actually was not as emotional a journey, you know, as I expected. But really, uh, your passion, right, to be talking about programming and writing. And and it's very interesting because I think Manil Suri is another author who's a mathematician and a writer of literary fiction. um, And you know, who uh, sort of saddles both these worlds. How do you reconcile the pragmatism that is often at loggerheads with art or aesthetics and of course the book you try to refute it in a way right
1: right oh uh I, before i answer that i should say there's i'm sitting in my uh little office in oakland in california and there's a thunderstorm going on outside and it's quite beautiful but you might hear rumblings <laughs> that are happening outside my window um so yeah the, i mean the 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 struggle between but well, the difference between pragmatic sort of, you know, budget issues and economics and the aesthetic virtues are prevalent both in the world of writing and in the world of tech as well, right? In the writing world, it's kind of obvious in that, you know, papi paid, right? You have to feed your stomach and you have to support a family and so forth. And then whatever fraction of your living you make by doing your writing There's always a sense of urgency, right? I need to get this project done. I need to get published. Uh, Anybody, any of your listeners who are are writers will know this well, right? And especially if you're in the freelance end of the business, right, where do the next four jobs come from? Am I ever going to get another writing job? Should I take these two? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, For the most part, through my writing life, I've been able to maneuver around that by having a steady day job, right? And I've been very lucky in that I've been able to teach at universities in the tech world even though individual programmers some of them have a very strong sense of aesthetics and sort of the integrity of writing good code right because you want to write code that is sturdy that is dependable that you know it can be engineered by future engineers cleanly and easily and it's maintainable Um, and then also you want to write beautiful code right it's not just functionality that you care about it needs to be elegant but then there's the pressure of you know your money, your company's money is running out, your boss is wanting you to finish this project. there's intense political pressures inside the company. So I think in neither of these two worlds is it it it's not at all possible to maintain you know some sort of complete isolation and distance from pragmatics, right? It's always the case that you're having to deal with this, and in terms of the tech world. In the past three years, I've really gotten to know this at close hand, right? Because I I ended up, while I was writing Sacred Games, I had this problem. I've always wanted a better environment to write in. And I don't want to take up time, but I, uh, we've created this, uh, we call it a super app for writers called Granthika. And what it does is, in some sense, it's connected to Geek Sublime because it allows the writer to attach, attach semantics to your text as you write, right? So, so. You know, your, your notes about your character are linked to the text. but So we're a very small startup, leanly funded, as they put it politely in the tech world. And you know we're always running out of money, so there's always this pressure, like, get on with it, sell your product, <laughs> and that, that kind of thing. So what happens with that is that whatever your idealistic uh, ambitions are to make a beautiful product under the surface, right, not just pretty looking on the outside, you're always making compromises, right? Because the pressures are on you. And and anyway, yeah. So so I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, but I think it exists in both spheres.
0: No, I think that answer was very helpful. And and I think anybody who's listening to the podcast m- might really want to go and check out co and your blog there, you know, where you talk about, of course, I'm digressing slightly. But I think uh, it's very interesting because you've actually attempted solve the whole challenge that writers face of who said what where and you know and building something that helps you write well uh if I can call it that if you can my question really I think the next question that I have for you is that you've um, looked at the dualities right that you've operated in which is writer and programmer Indian and American dabbled with dualities right which is being American and Indian, being a, being a writer and a programmer. How does uh, the whole aspect that you've spoken in the book about the Silicon Valley, right, where um, you talk about this whole hippie capitalism and the Indian mafia, etc. Um, at, at what point did you sort of realize that, uh, that this ecosystem is unfair? And, and you've spoken a lot about uh, uh, female programmers. So I think, perhaps, if we could talk a little bit about that. I'm just putting this here. So what I was asking was, how is this whole hacker culture that's dominated by white women?
1: So, so I mean, it's one of the, uh, I guess you would call it a uh, historical accident that modern computing was born, in some sense, in the UK, you know, Alan Turing and that whole World War II push. Uh, with simultaneous efforts on in the USA. Um, and then a lot of the history of modern computing has been dominated by the United States. And what happens in the United States is that early on, women are actually the programmers, interestingly enough. So the men create the big machines on a sort of conceptual and engineering level, but the people actually executing algorithms on the machine are women, right? Because at that time, Programming is seen as a kind of clerical job. The geniuses, as it were, they conceptualize the algorithms and then like a like a typist, right, or a stenographer, the programmer put the high-level algorithm into the machine. But as programming becomes more valued, as it's understood that it requires real intellectual effort, and as it gets paid better, and this always happens, it gets converted into more and more of a male profession, right? It's understood as... Requiring male virtues um, like machismo, and then I think what happens in the United States is that there is this huge, huge understanding of when you're doing anything new, it's connected to the pioneer culture. Right. So this whole idea of forging into the West, you know, facing violence and and hostile environments, who faces that? The cowboy does, right? And the cowboy always wins. So. The hacker culture in the United States is very dominated, I think, still by this mythology of, you know, we disrupt environments, we disrupt industries, and we do it in this kind of violent fashion. Which leads to, I think, a whole kind of a system into which women and people of any gender, of any sex who don't easily fit into this macho culture or who don't want to, they have a hard time fitting in. And so what happens to Indians is that, you know, we send people through the IITs to the United States very early on. For my, the new book that I'm working on, I've been talking to people in that first 1961, 62 batches of uh, IIT Kanpur. And it's amazing to hear their stories, right? They they come here and sometimes they're the only Indian person on a campus somewhere in the Midwest. So we come in very early and because of the, again, a kind of historical accident that Uh, Nehru and the the technocrats of that era managed to set up these elite institutions, they do very well. Some of them, these IIT people, maybe a lot of them do very well. And so Indians have this strange kind of, what's what's the word, a position, a racial position and a social position in the tech industry in the States. And also in general, I sometimes think of it as that we are provisionally accorded the position of honorary white people, right? And so you don't have to, you don't face the same outright discrimination as African-Americans or Latino people do, but you're given this kind of, you know, Satya Nadella can rise to the top of Microsoft, you know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, what I've heard a lot from Indian programmers, especially the people who are sent by these big consulting agencies, is that when they first get off the boat, so to speak, they have to learn how to navigate through this American culture, which for the most part is very foreign to them, right? So you don't want to be that Indian engineering school graduate guy with the high-waisted pants <laughs> and the proverbial like sort of protractor in, in the pocket. You have to kind of fit into this culture of blue jeans and hoodies, right? And adopt some of its mores. So it's a it's a real learning process, right? And in which people actually have explicit discussions about You know, as Indians, we sometimes seem too deferential. We're too polite, right? There's this Indian, I do it all the time. Somebody asks me a question. I might not want to say no directly, right? So I'll say, I'll see, or, you know, let me think about it. And I slide past it. And that people, you know, don't want to do. So there's all these kinds of uh, behavioral, cultural characteristics that you have to take on. And there's still a tension, right? And I've seen also just outright racism directed at people in the tech industry, Especially early on, you know, in this whole offshoring thing, when people here in, in the United States started to lose their jobs to programmers in India, that very quickly got very ugly, especially in online forums um, where people were anonymous. Um, and it was quite hideous. And I, I still see it happen. In, in the Silicon Valley tech industry, there is this notion of the Indian mafia right? Because there's a fair bunch of successful India Indian entrepreneurs. And so sometimes they're seen as, you know, being, what's the word, kind of shady in their alliances with each other. So it's a very interesting, like, sort of cultural and uh, exchange and economic exchange, uh, these networks of, I, I guess, influence and power that go back to the 50s. And before that, flowing over the oceans through these educational institutes into the tech industry.
0: I I think that's fascinating. And since you mentioned this whole liaison, you know, between the education system and the tech industry, I think, uh, and uh, I'm slightly digressing, but a fascinating book that I think I read recently uh, was the Cast of Merit Engineering Education in India by Ajanta Subramanyam, And perhaps you'd like to read it. (laughs) So I just thought that, uh, and because I just so recently finished reading it, and it does uh, discuss on... How Nehru set up the first IIT and that whole piece of engagement that happened between the IIT Madras and Germany, I, while you were mentioning it, just like popped up in my head. But with my next question to you is, at what point, you know, did you first believe that these parallels between coding and this sort of analyzed organization of Sanskrit uh, exist? So, did you chance upon it? Like, what? At what point? Does Programming go beyond something that you do just for the paycheck, versus something you know you want to intellectually explore and introspect.
1: So yeah, in terms of Sanskrit, you know, I'd always so so I should sort of talk about my relationship with Sanskrit uh, first. Is that uh, like many other people, Sanskrit was I felt was forced on me starting in sixth grade, uh, where it was compulsory in my school, and I think partly because it was taught to me in such a boring fashion, right? Like you learn verb declensions, you ratto them up, and then you, you know, put them out in the. they ask you questions in the exam and you try and answer those exams. I resented that. And then also there was a kind of really gut reaction against the sort of caste boundness of Sanskrit, right? Brahmanical nature of not just the language, as far as I understood, um, and its connections to... The caste system in the past, but also the many of the texts that we were being given there were like really, I don't know, boring, but also like, you know, uh, based in this kind of ideology. And I guess it took me a long time to figure out that the language itself went far beyond the Brahmanical sphere, right? So that some of the most important Buddhist intellectuals and philosophers use Sanskrit widely. Uh, Nagarjuna, for instance. He's so important. He's known as the second Buddha in China and Japan and a whole host of others. I didn't know about the Jain's interest in Sanskrit. And then also Sanskrit's uses in the intellectual sphere and in Tantra, right, where they used it for aims that were very, very anti-Brahmanical. And then also in my 20s, I started to read some of, in translation, some of these dazzling Sanskrit texts and Um, started when I was writing Red Earth and Pouring Rain to approach or to try and understand pre-modern Indian aesthetic systems. And so I gradually sort of uh, got more familiar with that whole pre-modern, not just the language, but with the whole intellectual and aesthetic tradition. And then elsewhere, I always heard these vague rumors about how Sanskrit was somehow different from other languages. And nobody ever could quite explain why. The, The phrase scientifically... Designed kept coming up and I couldn't quite understand that. So at some point I got frustrated enough to start to explore what this was all about. And then I started to read about Panini. And for those of you, your listeners who don't know Panini and his work well. So this is a guy who in about 500 BCE writes and publishes what is, we commonly got to call a grammar, but it's actually not a grammar in that, uh, English grammar textbook that some of us read when we were young, you know, where you have the verb tenses listed and so forth. This is actually a generational grammar and uh, generative grammar, I'm sorry. And what that does is he formally defines the whole entirety of the Sanskrit language in the same way that programming languages are today designed and formalized, right? And so what I mean by formalized is that natural languages, languages found in the wild among human beings as it were, usually have a very loose structure, right? And so um, you can't actually predict what some constructions are going to be. They become hard to parse because of this loose structure. When you have a formalized language like a a formal language, like a, a programming language, it is so tightly defined, its syntactical structures are so tightly defined that a machine can parse them, right? And that's how when I type in a line of code into an editor, the machine some the layers of software then can translate it into machine language um, in a way that is rigorous and predictable to a large extent and so amazingly enough Parnini is able to do this in 500 bce for a natural language right so he takes a living language that is around him and he formalizes it he defines it formally and it's an astonishing astonishing brilliant piece of work uh, the entire rule set that he uses to do this formalization You can print that out in 40 pages of text, in in 40 pages uh, of paper, if you put each rule on a different line. It's incredible. So before that, the language that we now call Sanskrit is actually just known as bhasha. It's after Parnini's intervention that it becomes known as Sanskrit. And Sanskrit is actually a descriptor. It means something like finished language or perfected language, right? Because everyone at the time understood that he had done something incredible, right? While I was starting to write Geeks Sublime, these thoughts were in my mind. And then my friend, um, Luther O'Brock, who's a Sanskrit scholar, who was then a grad student at Berkeley, I was talking to him about coding and that I was heading in the past, right, because of these aesthetic concerns about the beauty of code and the beauty of poetic language. And he said, Vikram, why are you ignoring the fact that Sanskrit, and especially if you're going to talk about Anand Vardhana and Abhinavagupta, who wrote in Sanskrit, then you need to think about Panini. And as like, a tube light that was, you know, my the light bulb, proverbial light bulb went over my head, went on over my head. And that's how like that part of the book then became really important. So and that's explored further. I should say also that at the risk of giving away a spoiler, there's this common kind of belief in the tech industry, and especially among programmers, that programming is just like writing poetry or writing an essay. And I end up resisting that really strongly because in writing code, you're trying to be as unambiguous as possible, right? You're you're trying to define precisely what the machine should do. And anytime that you're ambiguous is very dangerous because that is precisely what a bug is. And in today's world, a bug can cause not just you know, frustration on a few, for a few moments on the part of the user. You can actually kill people with that. Whereas in, in writing poetry or pr- other kinds of prose, uh, what you're trying to do from the point of view of the writer, and especially from the point of view of a fiction writer like me, is you're trying to create a kind of directed ambiguity, right? I'm trying to suggest many more things than just the denotative meaning of a sentence that I put on the page. And that, of course, the Indian aesthetic tradition calls that dhwani, right? The idea of endless resonance in a small piece of text, which they say is the very soul of poetry, right? That's what makes poetry beautiful. So uh, I guess I'm rambling a bit. (laughs) Uh, You also asked, when does programming go beyond something you do for the paycheck and something you want to intellectually explore and introspect? I think for a lot of programmers, this is why they get into it. Right? because there's something enormously satisfying and beautiful about sitting down at a computer and being able to type, of, type in a few lines of code and then making something happen, right? And then you put together these little units of code and you make something useful. And that's exactly what it was for me when I started programming, when I understood what you could do with code inside a machine. And then also in the way of making something useful, I could make things that made my life easier, right? And so it's very seductive. Uh, you talk to programmers and, you know, I, I wrote about this in the book. It's nine o'clock. You're trying to program something. You're writing code. It doesn't work. And you think, oh, I'll just try one more solution. And that doesn't work. And then you think, I'll try and one more. And then suddenly you look up and it's three o'clock in the morning, right? It just, you lose yourself in it. The trouble is that once you, <laughs> and again, this is like writing or I guess any other profession, once you start doing it for money, then all these other questions come into play, right? Like I have to deliver this code on Friday and the client is going to get very upset and they won't hire me again. So I have to you know, turn something in. So I just make something pragmatic that kind of works under the surface and I give it to them and get my paycheck, right? Uh, so there's always this tension and I hear stories all, about, all the time about people who work at um, these huge, huge, very desired well paid positions at these huge corporations like facebook and google and they get burnt out right they get burnt out by the constant pressure by the constant politics within in, inside any organization and then a lot of the the disillusionment is that a lot of people think that the tech industry is somehow inherently meritocratic that if you're good if you're good at your job you'll rise up and then you know, you spend 10 days inside Google and <laughs> realize that's not the case, right? Uh, that the old office politics laws still apply.
0: So I, I know you thought this was rambling, but but honestly, it wasn't. It was quite fascinating to listen to and hence I didn't want to jump in at all. Ukram, uh, you know, you've called writing your vocation and coding your obsession, and your book, travels eclectically through so many topics i sort of lost count of uh, the volume of adjectives uh, that people who have reviewed the book have used for it and, and then again in terms of topic there's technology philosophy
1: oh uh, i have to say that that for me one of the best things and i got this uh, fairly late in the in my research was right at the end of the book, I found these four postcards that Alan Turing sent to his friend, who's this logician named Robert Gandy, um, and they're such amazing little pieces of poetic writing, right? Uh, so, in let me find it in the book. Uh, he says, uh, and, and these these are in his own handwriting. Oh yeah, so so the first postcard says. Oh, the second postcard says. Uh, the universe is the interior of the light cone of creation. Science is a differential equation. Religion is a boundary condition. And then on the third postcard, he wrote, "Writes hyperboloids of wondrous light, rolling for eye through space and time, harbor their waves with which somehow might play out God's holy pantomime." And then all of this was was first of all. Uh, fascinating in terms of telling us something about who Turing is as a person, but then also it strangely resonated with me with some of the, many of the themes in the book, especially those to do with the, the tantric realizations that are scattered throughout the book. Um, And, and especially the ideas of the people that I wrote about was uh, Abhinava Gupta and the Trika tradition, this idea of uh, god's holy pantomime is really is really a a reflection or a mirror image of something that they argue all the time that the universe is created by this primordial consciousness called awareness consciousness and the reason that she does this is for play right for her own pleasure leela that is and it's a kind of, uh, I in the book, I called it a kind of simulation, right? Uh, a holodeck experience where each of us are part of this whole universal consciousness. We've just forgotten this, right? So we see each other as separate people, separate entities. And so this idea that Leela, the, the goddess's play, and God's holy pantomime sort of really came together for me. And And this was very late. I mean, this was a few days before I had to turn in the final manuscript for the book, and I just said, "Oh, I got to get this right." And then we had to get permissions to actually quote these, and I was like, "Okay, we can see about the permissions later." <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm going to put this in there because this is too perfect. So I should say that that you know, it's not just Sanskrit uh, has a rule bound structure and yet is concerned with aesthetics. All language, in a sense, is rule bound, right? Um, the difference in Sanskrit is that there was a person who was brilliant enough to actually discern the rules of this language and be able to produce a rule set that could formalize could make could formalize the language right so noam chomsky and his students and his followers starting in the 50s and 60s tried to do this exact same thing very hard they tried very hard to do this for english and other languages they just couldn't do it Right. And it wasn't, maybe it wasn't, I think probably it wasn't because the underlying formal semantics of these other languages are so complex that they cannot be captured. It's more that we don't have a rule set, a rule system, a Chomskyan grammar that can actually capture those rules. Right. So in some sense, Parnini's achievement is of taking a natural language and being able to formalize it. And you can see this in his grammar. He's not inventing a new language, right? hes If he was trying to invent something like Esperanto, where he could define himself independently the rules of the language, his grammar his, would be much, much simpler, right? He's try, he has to deal with all kinds of edge conditions, right? Where he has to say, well, this might be the case <clears throat> in most cases, but in these three cases, it actually works in this other way, right? But the beauty is that his rule set is flexible enough to accommodate all of those exceptions. So the Sanskrit poets and people who work within Sanskrit, the philosophers, the aestheticians, they care deeply about beauty, about elegance of language, about economy of language. They have judgments all the time about, you know, that guy wrote terrible poetry and it's terrible in these 17 aspects. And then in the same way, I think, programmers also do exactly the same thing, right? There is a gradation of aesthetic judgments from beautiful to ugly, right? So there are actually these competitions sometimes about what is the most horrible, ugly language that you can actually make, right? And I write about that in the book. So my favorite language is um, called Malboge, and I think that's how you pronounce it. And people were trying to compete. They've tried to compete uh, in, in terms of what is the the nastiest, most incomprehensible programming language that you can produce, that for a human being, it becomes almost impossible to write or to understand code written in that language. And this is uh, the language that I'm talking about is named after one of the circles of Dante's hell, right? And after it was defined as a language, it took years and years for somebody to actually write working code in it. And the only way they could actually write code in it was to define an algorithm in another language that could actually write this code. So programmers uh, worry about this all the time. They write code that tries to achieve both succinctness, beauty, all these other virtues, uh, clarity, and then also you know, they, they compete to see who can produce ugliness. And in very mundane everyday terms, there is a deep investment and a, a concern for, I guess, what you would call, what, what we call in the, in the community, readable code, right? Because what happens is it's not that, you know, you write your code today, you debug it, and then you can walk away from it. You might discover a bug three months from now or a year from now, and then have to come back to the code that you yourself have written, and then try and understand what you were trying to do. And if you don't write it with clarity, with intention, you really, and I'm not making this up, you can stare at the screen for an hour and not understand what the hell you were doing, right? How does this damn thing work? And this happens to me all the time. It can be code that I wrote two weeks ago. So you care deeply about clarity. You have arguments all the time about, oh, this language makes it possible to write code that is more clear than this other kind of language. And because programs can get so enormous and intricate, and they last so long, this becomes even more crucial. There are code bases that have run in very important contexts for decades, right? That nobody, today, nobody understands how they actually work. So in, in the book, I actually have my favorite example is that at the Pentagon, the running system that writes out paychecks for armed forces people in the United States is a code base that was written in the 60s. A long time ago, people lost the documentation that uh, tells you what the code is doing. And today, nobody understands how that thing works. And I believe it's still running in place. Uh, It makes mistakes, but you kind of are terrified about going in and trying to fix the bugs in the system because you can cause the whole thing to crash. You can introduce other bugs while you're trying to fix one bug. Um, And so when you're, as a programmer, you're tasked to do this kind of thing, you actually experience a very real feeling of dread, like absolute fear, right? <laughs> you want to walk away from your keyboard, like, I don't want to do this, right? And especially in these circumstances where, you know, you know people's livelihoods and their daily lives depend on this stuff, you can make mistakes that can do real damage. So clarity in the tech world means, and beauty and aesthetics means not just, you know, I'm sitting and reading some really beautiful code and I go, oh man, this is, this is great. It can actually mean the difference between um, life and death to some people.
0: So, and that is also, I think, because our world is now increasingly conditioned by code, right? We're shaped by what our computers and phones and smartwatches make possible for us through realities, right? I, I mean, of course, as you said, somebody can die because of a bug. So does programming sort of accomplish some of these transcendental preconditions, you know, for experiencing reality, which is described in the Sanskrit traditions?
1: Oh yeah, I I think the this old Indian obsession with language and its powers in the world are now being borne out in reality by the way that code is working, right? You know, in the Tantric traditions, for instance, the idea that a mantra is not just a mm, combination of symbols that call a goddess, or that are a way of speaking to a goddess, right? I'm, um, it's not that you're summoning a goddess, goddess, or that you're speaking to her. When you chant a mantra properly, that sound, that vibration, is the goddess herself, right? And so, what does that chanting that mantra achieve for you? You can actually shape reality. You can shape yourself, your own consciousness, but you can also shape reality through the mantra. And so, now we are then able to do this in the most mundane way sitting at our desks. We put together this string of syllables of syntax, and then we are able to make something move on the other side of the world, right? Uh, I'm able to write code, which then I can put into an app on my wristwatch, which then listens to my heart and then, you know, gives me feedback about what to do in order to make my heart rate go down. Right. So I'm shaping my condition, and then often I think now um, the systems of code that run into our world that that are apparent in our world are shaping our very consciousness itself right and this happens in the most invisible ways and i have to say this started happening a long time ago right so so you know the the those vcr controls that we all used to struggle with right like how do you set a recording and then it's all context bound the reason that those things were so incomprehensible and hard to control and especially i remember like getting frustrated with my parents right like here this is how you do it you press this button first and then you press this button and the recording will be set for 10 o'clock is because programmers under the surface of the VCR, under that metal and glass, were, use, were using an algorithm known as a state machine, right? And because programmers are sometimes, they don't think that much about human interaction on the other end, they surface this state machine so nakedly in the actual UI, uh, the, the user interaction, that it became very hard for non-programmers to understand. right? But then many of us started to understand the world and our interaction with it in the manner in which a state machine works, right? So yeah, we are able to intervene in our reality. We are able to shape our reality. And then, and I talked some of, about some of this at the end of the book, we are able now, and we are starting to do it. We are already doing it. We've been doing it for a decade, maybe a couple of decades. We are able to intervene in the very in the code that is at the very center of us being living things right dna is a code right so so if we can if we can surgically intervene in the code of dna um, as we are able to do now we can change the way in which animals look we are able to combine animal genes with plant genes and so it's a very very new science fictiony kind of reality that we once imagined was you know 500 or a thousand years into our future, it's happening right now. And then as as I talk about this, I'm reminded that in the Tantra Loka, Abhinava Gupta wrote something that, for me at least, resonates very strongly with our current condition. So he says, the various levels in which creative intuition is present follow from conventional language being immersed in what precedes it, and that in the primordial transcendental phonemes. Those who repose in this creative intuition, overflowing with the primordial phonemes, become poetic and linguistic adepts. Resting in this consciousness reality in its highest form, unlimited by conventional language, what would they not be able to know and what would they not be able to do? Right. So the transcendental phonemes in our case has, I think, translates now (laughs) into machine language. Right, and so what we've done is we've connected that low-level machine language to the conventional language, which appears on our inside our programming editors, and now my ten-year-old daughter is able to program a machine to do what she wants. So it's an extremely powerful position to be in. It's extraordinarily scary as well, (laughs) in in not just physical ways, right? That we're going to produce you know enhanced humans and all all of that but very much in the social and political sphere as well right uh, social media right how are we are able to influence that how are we are able to influence politics how reality seems itself uh, the social reality and political reality seems now to be malleable uh, in a way that it's never been before or at least in a way that's Faster and available to more people than before, right? I think of Cambridge Analytica and I'm dazzled by what they were able to do uh, It's terrifying, but it's also very
0: educational Vikram, thank you so much for this conversation. I think there's been so much food for thought. It's been Absolutely marvelous. I think the last question for today is is and not even a question really but a book recommendation you know, That you would like to leave with us for the listeners
1: Okay, so so I have two that are very much on my mind right now. Is one is a, a book by Jeanette Winterson. Uh, she's an amazing writer of literary fiction, and this one is called Frankenstein, right? Like uh, as in Frankenstein, but spelled F R A N K I S S S T E I N, and it's very much a, <laughs> in resonance in in uh, with the themes that we've been talking about today. So. It's about this guy who, one person who is producing sex robots, right? So, like, he's doing this mostly for men. Um, these kind of living doll things, do you know about these? Like, where, where you have these artificial girlfriends, as it were, and he's making them more and more responsive, right? And human-like. And then there's this other um, kind of tech tycoon who wants to transcend human reality and transfer consciousness, into the um, into computers, so that we can all live forever in this kind of digital reality, and and so it's fascinating in terms of its uh, aliveness to what we're going through right now. Uh, so I would recommend that. And then there's a nonfiction book that I just started reading last week, and it's called the psycho the psychology of religious fundamentalism, uh, which is obviously very much on my mind because of what's going on both in India and in the United States at the moment. Uh, the Oncoming fascism in both um, both countries, um, and it's a um, it's a great great book. About, uh, at least that's my sense of it so far, uh, by three people who are psychologists of religion, and they're trying to answer the reason why fundamentalism of various sorts is so attractive. What it do, what does it give give to the believers? And the case they're making is that. It gives you a kind of comprehensive, holistic meaning and purpose in life, right? Usually based on one text or a very few texts to which you then, once you ally yourself to these texts, all of meaning in the world and inside you is produced by a relationship to these texts. And therefore, when somebody tries to fracture this text or even quote unquote insult it in any way, then you resort to like extreme methods, right? Often violent. Uh, so I'm fascinated by, by both of these books right now, um, and especially, I guess, in relationship to each other, right? Uh, the fundamentalism of the sex robot guy, right, who's convinced that he's going to uh, improve human life by a thousandfold by making these artificial companions available to us, right? None of us will ever long again or be alone again. The other guy who's trying to, who's convinced that we should all become immortal inside the machine, um, and leave behind, like, frail human flesh. Uh, and then this book, right, which is speaking to that other book in terms of what it's saying about fundamentalism.
0: Very fascinating. Thank you so much, Vikram, for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure. And and thank you so much for, you know, sort of dealing with these little tech like, audio glitches as well. <laughs>
1: No, no, that's fine. Right? So technology breaks at the time when we need it the most. I mean, in one sense, it's magical, right? We are speaking to each other across the planet. Yeah. And then, of course, it's betraying us. Right? As we're having a conversation, it's like, you know, saying, "Ah, I just won't do it today. Right? And why? None of us know.
0: That is true. On that note, everybody, thank you for listening to this episode. Do uh, grab a copy of Mirrored Mind slash Geek Sublime um, on Amazon, Flipkart, um, at an online or independent bookstore near you. Do give it a read. It's an absolutely fascinating work by Vikram. Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana and HD smart cards.